A reading from the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, starting with verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Survey and Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophecy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the, the surveyor and Lord sorry, says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Savoyan Lord says, Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, This is what the surveying Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, starting with verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If needed, the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, 
then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. The Word of the Lord. reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The sisters of Lazarus sent word to Jesus saying, Master, the one you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. He became perturbed and deeply troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have done something so that this man would not have died? So Jesus, perturbed again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in cloth. So Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. Now many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen what he had done began to believe in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Good to be with you all this Sunday. This is the last Sunday in the season of Lent, so we kick off the final week of Lent. I hope you are Lenting well. Uh, this is a season of learned dependence. In this season, we remember our brokenness. We remember our dependence, our need on God, which is really a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to come to the end of ourselves, 
So much of the Christian story, so much of the biblical story, is about God creating out of nothingness. <laughs> that where there's something that seems like it, nothing could happen there. God speaks and that thing happens. And that's what we hear today. But first, we have to come to that sense, come to that place where we need God. We need him. We are dependent on him. We are nothing without God. Henry Nouwen writes, The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Old Testament reading that Katie read uh, so well recounts the prophet Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of Dry Bones. In this story, the children of Israel have turned to idolatry and turned to apostasy. They've gone away from God, and they experience where this false worship has led them. It's led them to uh, oppression in Babylon. They find themselves in a place dominated by huge statues of brutal and capricious gods. They're in a foreign land in a strange place. The people are in exile. They're at the end of themselves. They have no strength on their own. And then in a vision, God takes the prophet Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. So this is an image that's empty of all life. There once was life, but it's gone. It's empty, this valley of dry bones. And God asks Ezekiel a rhetorical question that we all ask ourselves in times where we feel like at the end of our rope or in place of nothingness. Mortal, can these bones live? A few years ago... Um, it was about 2020, it was the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and we were taking lots of extra walks because we didn't have anything else to do. Remember, my family and I went on a walk. Lucy was six at the time. We saw that someone had placed a skeleton on their porch, and they had put that skeleton in clothes and sunglasses and, you know, the whole thing and sitting out there on their porch. And uh, uh, Lucy, my six-year-old, was pretty freaked out by it. She was, you know, pretty uh, afraid. And then, and then she kind of calmed herself down, and she said, but you know what? It's fine, because I know there's no such thing as skeletons. <laughs> and I responded, well, it's a little more complicated than that. S skeletons are real. You know, you have a skeleton, I have a skeleton, but, but they need muscles in order to move. She then said, and they need lungs to breathe and a heart to pump blood. And I said, yes, that's true. They need it all. <laughs> the reason why skeletons at Halloween time and other times are scary is because they're a symbol of death. It's the foundation of what life cut off from the source of life looks like. <laughs> and it's scary because it goes, how can something be alive when it's cut from the source of life? That's the fearful thing. The vision of the dry bones and then God breathing into them is supposed to remind us of the Genesis creation story. God created the world through his speaking. God speaks and things happen. This is how life comes about, not through human effort, but through the speaking of God. Well, when, when God asks Ezekiel, you know, are, can these bones live? Mortal, can these bones live? Ezekiel doesn't really have an answer for him. He's like, well, you're the one that knows that kind of stuff. In response, God says to him, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. As the prophet, Ezekiel is to speak the words of God to the bones, and life is to come to them. Then there's two stages of this prophesying. So the bones return to life, and they correspond with the creation story. So first, there's the body, and then there's the breath of life. 
So there's dust and then there's the breath of life. God speaks and breathes his life into the dust. Ezekiel is to speak to the people of Israel, declaring, I know you feel like you're cut off. I know you're in the land of oppression. I know where your sin and your emptiness had led you. I know that you forgot that you're dependent on God, but these bones can live. And it's only based on the word of God and God speaking. We have to remember Israel's done nothing. They've not earned or proved themselves in any way, but God tells the prophet, speak the words of God, speak the word of the Lord over them. And as he speaks, we see the process of new creation begin to unfold. There's a rattling and there's sinews and flesh and skin. And then it says these bodies are put together and God breathes life into the bodies. Now I speak and nothing happens, okay? <laughs> but God speaks, and things happen. You speak, your words are limited. Maybe those of us that are parents, we hope that when we speak something to our child, it might carry some weight for them. <laughs> but, but our words are limited, but God's words are unlimited. Our words don't carry the same authority as God's words. But when God speaks, things happen, God is showing Ezekiel that he is not only the God who created the world, he's the God who continues to create, who continues to speak life into dry bones, continues to speak life into existence. He continues to take the raw materials of the world and breathe life into them. But it wouldn't be fair to say that resurrection here is just a metaphor. The, Israel's hope was the removal of their oppression. Right? They've got an oppressor over them in Babylon, and they want to be set free from that. But the reality that God knew is that Israel and the world needed something deeper than just that oppression. They needed not only to be freed from exile, but death itself needed to be undone. God is always faithful, even when we are unfaithful. Reverend Fleming Rutledge says, He raises them from the dust because he is their God. The promise is unconditional. God's action in reconstituting the people of Israel is not a reward due them. It proceeds from his nature as the one who raises the dead. This is who God is, the one who speaks and things happen, who calls life out of death. And this is a foreshadowing, of course, of the future resurrection, that there will be a day when all of God's people will be raised to life, when the world will be put back together. This is the hope, the, the song that you may have associated with this passage is an old um, uh, spiritual from the American South when slaves sang with hope of a world where justice would roll down like waters. And they would sing about this story in Ezekiel. You may know the, so the song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. We're going to walk again with a dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. It's this calling that even when things seem so dark, when they seem empty, that God can speak life. Christians believe that the hope of the future resurrection has radically broken in today and is present in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Dry bones are not the end of the story. And that means your situation and my situation, no matter what difficulties we face, some of you are facing grief, and pain, and things feel like they've kind of come to an end of a rope or dark place, that it's not the end of the story, that God is faithful. God has not stopped breathing into circumstances, has not stopped speaking into our lives. In our Romans reading, Paul basically says, 
If we believe that about resurrection, that this is what God does, then it changes how we live. He talks about the difference between the flesh and the spirit. And this is really hard for us today in 21st century Western world. When we hear about flesh and we hear about spirit, sometimes we think of flesh as our physical bodies. So that's caused a lot of Christians throughout the ages to kind of go, okay, the body is bad, and then somehow the spirit is good, which is not what Paul is saying. Sometimes we think of the flesh as like flesh and bone physicality, and the spirit's like this floaty, supernatural or non-physical thing. But that's not really what Paul is getting at, because God created a good physical world. God created our bodies and the earth, and Paul did not reject that world. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, says, the apostle does not reject the substance of the flesh, but shows that the spirit must be infused into it. Kind of reminds us of the breath of Ezekiel, right? Of breathing into the dry bones. Flesh, for Paul, reflects the broken and twisted state of God's good world that God created. But spirit, so he says, don't live by the flesh, don't be governed by the flesh, but we live by the spirit. So this is God's own spirit, the Holy Spirit. Flesh represents humanity in Adam. Spirit stands for humanity in the Messiah, Jesus. Because of the indwelling of God's spirit, God lives in us. God's people are the temple. Christ lives in us by the spirit. Father Chris Green points out that even after we've been baptized, we still remain, by, remain bound by the grave clothes of our old humanity. Green says, long after we're delivered from slavery in Egypt, we find that we still engage the world as slaves. We're delivered from death, not only to life with God, but also life with neighbor. We're saved not from one another, but for and to one another. And so continually, we have to have our minds renewed, our hearts purged, our imaginations sanctified, our loves reordered. Now, all of this, this new way of living by the Spirit, it anticipates this future resurrection, which I talked about, the affirmation of God's good creation, and it's being put right once and for all. This is the affirmation of the physical resurrection of Jesus and the physical future resurrection of all of God's people. Paul says the Spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies. So here's what's cool. Paul's been saying that God is doing in the church right now what he will one day do for all creation. God has done something in us, inviting us to live by the Spirit, indwelled by the Spirit here and now, and that is God's intention for the whole world. The Spirit is at work all the way through, generating faith in us, in the present, through the preaching of the gospel, living, leading a life driven by the Spirit, and then giving us resurrection life on the other side of death. We see this play out in our gospel reading. We read of the death of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is warned that his friend, Lazarus, is very sick. And he says, this sickness will not end in death, but God's son will be glorified through it. So finally, he makes his way to the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Total side note, I'm not going to go down it, but we don't know their kind of arrangement, their living arrangement. It seems like it's Martha's home. So we don't know if Lazarus is very young 
We don't know if Lazarus has a situation in his life where he's unable to speak for himself or, or what it is, but it kind of is tend to be indicated that it's Martha's home. She seems to be the head of the household, which is interesting. We don't know what Jesus' friendship with Lazarus is like, but somehow there is this kinship between the four of them, between this family and with Jesus. He finally gets to their home, and, and everyone says to him, you're too late. Lazarus, your friend, has died. Martha says to Jesus, Jesus, you're too late. If you had gotten here sooner, my brother would not have died. Then Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And this is interesting. Martha says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. So she believes in this future resurrection of all of God's people. That was a common belief for Jews in the first century, that one day all of God's people will raise from the dead. And they would look at the passage in Ezekiel and some in Isaiah that would point to this future day and this future reality. Israel was reminded there would be a day when they would be raised to new life. Martha's firm with Jesus. I know I will see him again at the resurrection. I know that. But she's almost saying, that does nothing for me now. But Jesus says to her something altogether unexpected. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. The one who believes in me, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me, will, or excuse me, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Jesus is saying that future day that you hope for, and you long for, when everything is made right, when justice is true, when all the wrongs are undone, when we wipe every tear from, from eyes, when all of that happens, that future day that you long for has broken in here and now in me, Jesus says. Now notice what happens. The pain in this situation is real. And the pain in our world is real. Sickness is real. Loneliness is real. Death is real. And yet, it's also not the end. Jesus' resurrection shows us that though the powers of death poured all of their strength out on Jesus, death could not hold him. God speaks and life happens. Jesus asks Martha, do you believe? In other words, are you willing to trust that in me there is something bigger happening than what you can see? Christians are a people, to be a people, who fully suffer the pain of the world, and we do so with a different hope. In fact, you can read this whole passage as a protest against Jesus. Mary and Martha both asked Jesus, where were you? Like, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. This question of where were you is the question we all ask in times of suffering and loss. Where were you when this happened in my life? Where were you when this painful situation happened? When I had this loss of this relationship or a loved one or when this illness happened, where were you, Jesus, in that time? And the crowd protests Jesus. They say he's healed so many people and yet they're, they're baffled. He opened the blind eyes of those who were around him. Why can't he heal Lazarus? And this is a theme all throughout the Gospel of John, people protesting Jesus. From John 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness do not receive him, all the way to the crucifixion, which this protest turns to violence. The sisters say, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. 
But Jesus doesn't enter into their hypothetical. He doesn't accept their terms. The circumstance is not a what if, but it's an opportunity for Jesus to reveal resurrection and life. Notice this. In the midst of their protest, he doesn't silence them. He doesn't say, shut up, Mary. You don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't say, I didn't mean that to be funny, but then. Um, he doesn't say, Mary, you need to have more faith. Just have more faith. Come on, Mary. No, he just says this, verse 34. Where have you laid him? Where is he? In other words, take me to him. Take me to your pain. Take me to that place where you've laid him. And they respond with, Lord, come and see. The phrase come and see is a common phrase for John. Um, he often uses it when there's revelation that's about to happen. So when the disciples in John 1 ask Jesus where he's staying, he says, come and see. When Nathaniel asks Philip if anyone from Nazareth could possibly be good, Philip says, come and see. In John 4, when Jesus reveals himself to the woman at the well, she runs to tell the Samaritans about him and she says, come and see. It's a common response to doubt in John's gospel. It's saying, okay, if you doubt this, come and see. It's not, an, it's not an argument. It's not an invalidation of questions or feelings. It's a willingness to stand with the questions and point to something else. It's a calling of solidarity. Here, it's so fascinating, it's Mary who says, come and see. She's the one struggling. She's the one grieving. But her come and see becomes part of, even unwittingly, becomes part of a line of witnesses declaring who God is, declaring who Jesus is. She doesn't know it, know it but she's about to be a witness to God's new creation at work. So Jesus says, take me to him. Take me to the place of your pain, the place of your darkness, the place where it hurts. And I believe in the midst of our pain, God doesn't silence us. He invites us to reveal our real hurt to him. He doesn't explain once he's there. Notice what Jesus does once he gets to the come and see place, once he gets to the place where Lazarus has died. He weeps. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. He says, this pain is my pain too. He weeps. He carries our pain with him. He steps into their grief. He cries for those around him and the pain they experience. But he also steps into human grief and pain and mourning himself. He grieves with the world in the state that it's in. This broken world, this messy world, this discordant world, this world that's about to crucify true love in the flesh. He grieves with the world. Walter Brueggemann writes, Jesus sees that only those who mourn will be comforted. Only those who embrace the reality of death will receive the new life. Implicit in his statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted. And those who do not face the endings will not receive the newness. Now this, of course, is not the end of the story. Martha enters the scene again. Jesus looks at the grave and says, take away the stone. Martha's concerned about the smell. It's tropical weather. Body's been there for a while now. Everyone knows what that means. Martha's basically like, Jesus, you must be joking. But again, 
He doesn't tell her to shut up. He doesn't silence her doubt. He simply says, remember the promise and you will see the glory. Now notice this pattern, solidarity with pain and promise of hope at the same time. Solidarity with pain and promise of hope, fully present and fully pointing towards hope at the same time. And it's not a balance between the two. It's not we're a little bit empathetic and we stand a little bit with pain and then we promise a little bit of hope and we just got to balance the two. Fully present in pain and fully promising hope. Jesus points them somewhere and with the sound of his voice in the same way that God created the world by speaking, in the same way that life came to dry bones through God's work, new creation comes about by God speaking. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus calls us out of death. Jesus is the one who is resurrection, and in him, death has died. We see here with Lazarus a foretaste that Jesus isn't just a healer. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the one who undoes death itself. And this is really what miracles are um, altogether. Miracles are never an end in and of themselves. Miracles simply point us to the fact that God has conquered death, and one day we will see that made right. We will see that all right. We don't see that in fullness now, but we sometimes see glimpses, miracles, signs. Christians are called to be a people of solidarity and promise. We're called to be a people of solidarity, and that means we don't silence the protests. We don't silence hurts. When people are in pain, we don't give them a Bible verse and tell them just to have more faith. Instead, our calling is to say, take us to your hurt. Show me where you're hurting and where it's painful. Unfortunately, the tendency among a lot of Christians is to, in those situations, to prove or to defend or to fight. In the face of so many people that are facing church hurt and trauma, the tendency of the church is to rise up and kind of defend ourselves and push back against this. And that's actually not our calling at all. Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't defend himself. He weeps. What if the church were those and known as those who weep with those who weep, who find ourselves among the oppressed and the weak, and in solidarity we trust that God is still at work, that there is something that God is doing in the midst of this, there is something new that will show itself, not because of this, but in the midst of it. This week's readings lead us to this place of loss and the hope of resurrection. It's very appropriate for the last Sunday of Lent. We find ourselves at the end of our place, at the end of ourselves, the end of our rope. And then knowing that in a couple weeks, there is resurrection. To observe Lent is not to forget about resurrection. It's not that we pretend for six weeks that Easter's not really coming and we kind of just kind of make it through. No, during Lent, we sit in the reality of pain. And related to this, it's an opportunity for us to acknowledge our own pain. What pain are you experiencing today? What loss or lack or fear are you facing? What are the dry bones in your life? My hope is that sacrament would be known as a place where people could bring fully who they are to say, come and see. Come and see my doubt and my pain and my past hurt and the place where I've been rejected by my family, those close to me, by my state. My prayer is that we would be a safe place for those who are grieving. But that also means, 
As we step into the reality of pain, we're plunged into a world of pain. So this isn't just a situation where we come together and we get in touch with our own pain. That's first. It has to happen. But we are then sent into a world of pain. In fact, this is actually what it means to be a baptized person. Rowan Williams writes, if being baptized is being led to where Jesus is, then being baptized is being led towards the chaos and neediness of a humanity that's forgotten its own destiny. A baptized Christian ought to be somebody who's not afraid of looking with honesty at that chaos inside as well as being where humanity is at risk outside. So baptism means being with Jesus in the depths, the depths of human need, including the depths of our own selves in their need, but also in the depths of God's love, in the depths where the Spirit is recreating and refreshing human life as God meant it to be. The world in which we live is messy. And this Sunday, we're invited to say, come and see to Jesus. Invite him to the places of our pain and our lives and our world. And as we fully acknowledge this pain and the darkness, the world over which Jesus wept, only then are we able to see the promise that there is more to the story. God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Jesus asks Martha, do you believe? Do we still believe that God hasn't given up? that he's still creating, that God's making beautiful things out of broken things? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? May we know God's presence in the suffering, and may we know the promise of resurrection. Amen.